0: Good morning, I could welcome you to Anchor Baptist Church this morning, and it's good to have each of you, I know it's a cold and icy morning, and so uh, it's good to see everybody out, looking forward to a wonderful service, uh, we have a couple announcements and then we'll open up the service.
1: All right, good morning. Uh, today, there is an activity for the teens. They are going to do Bible quizzing with Pastor Josh. Um, they're driving up to Pennsylvania, I think about an hour away. So if you guys think about it, just be praying for the teens as they're traveling um, through the Bible quizzing. They're studying, you just told me, First John 1 and 2. I was like, you just told me. Um, so just be praying for them as they're traveling today, and they'll be back before the evening service. Um, this Thursday and Friday as well, the teens are also having their winter camp. Uh, to, uh, they're going to Servant's Heart, again, up in Pennsylvania, so again, be tr- praying for their safety of travel, um, as well as for ladies that are interested in being part of the SOS. Um, they're Turn those forms in by, preferably today, but by next Sunday at the latest. Um, next Sunday, we're having our annual business meeting, and then February 1st, we're having a ladies' meeting
2: Our opening scripture reading is found in Psalm 119, starting with verse 29. Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth, thy judgments have I laid before me. I have stuck unto thy testimonies. O Lord, put me not to shame. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Our theme for worship today, let's rejoice in God's grace and respond wisely to it.
0: Please let's all bow together for a word of prayer. I also want to mention that this Sunday uh, is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and there are several folks in our church who either currently do or have at different times worked at uh, some of the pregnancy clinics that um, the whole purpose of those uh, pregnancy clinics being open is to preserve life. And uh, people are involved as counselors. They provide support. They uh, let the ladies know um, about the options that are available for them. Uh, so that they can uh, keep the life of their child and that they'll have tools to help them uh, as they're trying to raise that little one. And so um, we really need to pray for those who are in those kinds of ministries. I also um, want to mention that we should pray that we will see a cultural change in our nation and that people will desire to have children, that they'll desire to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and ultimately that we will be not just pro-life, where children's lives are preserved, but people raise their kids well. And uh, we as God's people need to, need to set, set the tone in that area. So let's be out together for a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to bless the service and uh, pray for those who um, are very specifically involved uh, in these areas. Our Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. And as it was read this morning, I pray that you will help us to think on these truths. As we sing praise to you, I pray that you would help us to consider the rich truths that we express in song. As the word of God is opened and and it's preached, I pray that you will speak to our hearts. And help the Holy Spirit to work in us in a way that is very impactful through the word. Father, I thank you for those who are involved in various ministries that are related to defending life and preserving it. Um, pray especially for those who work in the pregnancy clinics in our area, um, who are who are working to advise and help women who are in difficult situations. I pray that as a nation we would turn to you, that we would see a cultural change in our land where people will value human life uh, from conception till the day a person dies. Um, I pray that we will, as Christians, have um, a heartbeat for. Um, The preservation of life, the defending of life, and ultimately the shaping of the lives that you give us as your people. And I pray that you'll especially bless our families, be with our moms and dads, that they would raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I pray that as a church we would have uh, just a godly example of how a Christian family should operate. I pray that your hand of blessing would be on this service and all that is said and done and we ask it in Christ's name, amen.
3: Good morning, Acre Baptist Church. Those in person and uh, joining us online, welcome visitors. Anybody else out there that can uh, raise their hands in faithful testimony to demonstrate the efficacy of ibuprofen for the last week or so? Amen. So uh, good to see you all out here braving the, the cold. Uh, it's chilly outside, no doubt. But we're going to warm this place up. Please stand with me as we turn to page 157. Page 157. We're going to warm our hearts as we sing praises to God for the grace that is greater than our sins. Sing it out, all three verses. Just a few pages to 147. Page 147. I think y'all are about to get warmed up on that one. Amazing grace now, all five verses. seated. And we're going to go back to the back of the book, page 464. Not quite the back. Now, with that grace, how firm a foundation we have. All four verses. How firm a foundation. singing. For our second scripture reading, we'll go to the book of Luke, the book of Luke, chapter 11, and we'll pick up in verses 27 through 32. Follow along in your Bibles or up on the screen as I read, starting in verse 27. And it came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, "'Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked.' But he said, "'Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God, and keep it.' And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, "'This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites,' So shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and, Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Next song, we're going to turn to page 292. Got some instructions on this one. Going to get down to sing the first two verses, and then we're going to do a meet and greet. But I've got some options for you. Okay? You can always, of course, shake the hands, fist bumps, forearm bumps, elbow bumps, but then there's also kind of the, the queenly wave, you know? And then there's the kingly wave, where you get kind of smiling like that so whatever fits your fancy stand with me got can't can't sit down the bible stands first two verses on the third verse we'll uh, turn around and do a meet and greet however this is going to be fun to watch from up here and uh, so we'll see how, how it all goes but on the on the third verse meet and greet we'll uh play through a couple verses maybe try to get you guys shanghai back into your seats and we'll sing on the last verse okay The Bible stands. tell you what, please have a seat. You all look like a swarm of bees out there going hither yonder. So, okay. For the next song, we're going to go to the blue book. Blue book or follow along on the screen, page 192 in the back. Page 192. Just jump right by it. All four verses of Complete in Thee. When we get to the last chorus I'm going to ask the instruments to back back off, back out and sing it a cappella complete in the all four verses.
0: Okay, well our children can be dismissed to the back for their junior church class. And the rest of you, (coughs) I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and let's all turn together to Luke's Gospel and we're in Luke chapter 11 this morning, Luke chapter 11, and we're going to read a little bit shorter portion of the passage that was read for our second scripture reading. So I'm going to begin in verse 29 and we'll read down to verse 33. Here's what God's Word states. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign. And there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up in judgment with the men of this generation." And condemn them, for she came from the uttermost part of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, put it in a secret place, neither under a bushel but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. Please, let's bow together for a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to help us to understand what Christ is saying in these verses and then how these truths apply to us this morning. Our Father, as we opened up the Word of God, I pray that the Spirit of God would open up our hearts. That He would convict us where that is needed, where He would warm us and encourage us where that is needed. Father, I pray that as we sit under the ministry of this text of scripture that our spirits would be uh, encouraged and uplifted and strengthened and our thinking would be shaped to become more and more biblical in its thinking. Father, help me as I communicate this text to do it in a way that is simple and clear and every person here can easily follow it and I pray that you would use it to build our lives on truth and we ask it all in Christ's name, amen. Luke chapter 11 verses 29 through 33 is a fascinating passage of Scripture. In this passage, we see that God's grace provides a compelling case that calls us to repent and to trust Christ alone for our salvation. This passage reminds us that rejecting this grace is the most serious sin a person could commit because it ultimately ends in eternal destruction. Now, I think a lot of times when we think about the way that people live their lives, we look at sin and we kind of put it in certain categories. Now, a lot of us would say, well, we don't put sin in categories. We know that all sin is serious, all sin is severe, but I think that there are times that we will look at certain kinds of sins and we'll say, well, that's sin right there because of what it will do if you embrace it or you do it, how it hurts you, how it hurts society, how it hurts your family, how it hurts other people. We tend to say, those sins are more serious and then these other sins, well, maybe they're not as serious. But I want you to realize that out of all the sins that a man or woman could commit... The most significant of all of them is the one we're going to talk about here this morning. And it's a sin that is so easy for us to excuse. You know what the sin is? It's the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of rejecting the most basic grace from God where He takes the truth and He presents it to us, and the case is compelling, and the case is sound, and the case is convincing. But because of something inside of us, we say, you know what? I think I'll just pass that by. I'll leave it there. I'll ignore it. It's not enough information for me to embrace it. I want you to realize that every opportunity where someone comes in contact with truth, it is the result of the grace of God and it is purely the result of the grace of God. And when God in his grace gives us opportunity to come in contact with the truth, we've got to do something with it. If we don't do the right thing with it, we begin to harden our hearts and dull our conscience and take the convicting work of the spirit of God in our hearts and we suppress it. And the result of that suppression, just a little at a time, can be absolutely deadening. This passage reminds us that rejecting this grace is the most serious sin that a person can commit. Because it ultimately ends in eternal destruction. As we look at the text in front of us, I think what the Lord's going to show us is that we need to humbly embrace the opportunities that he's given us. And whether you think of it this way or not, every time you come into this building and the word of God is open, if the word of God is being presented with clarity... It is an opportunity to respond to truth. Anytime you get on the live stream and you listen to a sermon or you watch the sermon, whatever that is, it's an opportunity to come in contact with the truth. God's going to hold us accountable for what we do with that information. I want to start with a couple of introductory thoughts that I think should be fairly self-evident, but they're worth being stated again. God is not obligated to give us an infinite number of opportunities. He's really not even obligated to give us any opportunities. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't. He gives us an unbelievable number of opportunities, but he's not under obligation. He's not under obligation to give us a number, an infinite number of confirmations to his existence and the nature of the gospel and the veracity of scripture and all those things. When God gives us an opportunity, it's his grace. It's his kindness. It's his mercy. And there's no end to the potential questions that we can ask ourselves. I want you to think about what it's like when you have someone who's about three years old living in your house. Now, how many questions does your three-year-old or when you had a three-year-old, how many questions can that three-year-old come up with? The answer is there's no end to the potential questions when they go to bed and they're laying in bed. Hey, daddy, I have one more question. Mommy, I have one more question. Guess what? The questions that a child can ask are infinite. And sometimes the questions that we want to ask God and we expect him to answer are infinite as well. That's what we're seeing in these verses. We're seeing these people who have access to more information than you and I have access to. They were able to visibly see the Lord Jesus Christ. They could have reached out and touched him. They saw him perform miracles. They heard his teaching. They had the law and the prophets, all those things. And they're saying, give us more or we won't believe. Give us another sign and we won't believe. Folks, there's no end to the possible questions. But I do want to say this. Faith starts with facts. Faith isn't just a feeling. It's not like a leap into the dark and I say, boy, I sure hope this is going to work. I have this ice rink in my backyard. I'm so excited. It's finally cold enough to get on it. And I—you and know the first time that you step out on that ice, and I, I mean, I weigh as much as all my kids combined, okay? So if I can walk on the ice and it doesn't break, they're good when they're on the ice. But the first time I step on there and I hear this little crackling sound around the sides, I go, oh boy, what's about to happen next? And I just gingerly step out. The water's only five inches deep. So even if I fall through, it won't matter. But I'm standing on it and I, I take the next step. and I'm standing there, I'm like, okay, I'm good, I can do this. I hope you realize that faith is not this like leap into the dark. I'm just hoping that there's something there that I don't fall through. Faith's built on something solid. Faith is built on facts. And the Bible gives us so much information about this. When God called these people to believe, he wasn't saying, hey, just give me a try. I know there's nothing believable about what I'm saying and there's nothing believable about what I'm telling you I can do but I just hope you'll trust me. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's saying, don't you remember what the prophets said? And don't you remember what it says in Isaiah? Well, here's an example of of me fulfilling those texts of scripture. That's the kind of stuff that Jesus is doing. Listen to some of the things that God has given us that are compelling reasons to trust Christ as our savior. I start with creation's existence, proclaiming his existence. Hebrews 11 verse three says, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made by things which do appear. Now what's amazing is if you did not have the Bible and all you did was you studied the creation, you would have to come to the conclusion that there was a point when this started. And as you examine what you're looking at, you'll have to also come to the the point where you go, When this started, it was shaped by something. And that something has intelligence and wisdom and loves beauty and all of those things. I mean, think about something as simple as this. When you look out into your yard and you see like this coat of white and you examine the beauty of it, if that's, you know, if you like snow, I like snow. You look at at this beauty and you go, wow, so beautiful. But what you're not seeing is that if you walked up and you just lifted up the snow and you put it in your hands, you would see like all kinds of beauty in your hand because you would see all of these individual little snowflakes. Every single one of them is unique and different, yet so similar. And if it's a really light and fluffy and cold, dry snow, you can see all of these little crystals in your hand. So when you're looking at a postcard, you're not seeing the full beauty of what's there. I mean, you could go down, just, just pick it up and look at it and examine it, all these individual little pieces in your hand. Now, what kind of a person would say, well, that just happened by itself. I mean, really, did your phone create itself? No, it did not. Your phone's shaping you, and it's shaping me, but it didn't create itself. All these engineers, they were working on it. All this trial and error. I mean 50 years ago people would have laughed at you if you said oh you could like hold like your computer and all its computing ability in your pocket they'd go like whatever what are you talking about but but you can you have no idea where this is going to end but what does it tell you it tells you something exists because it was made it was designed there's wisdom and that's that's what the text is saying. Or in Psalm 19, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Nowhere, no matter where you go in all of creation, and you watch the sunset and you see all those colors and you realize that those colors, I see them the way that I do because I have an eye, I have eyes that were designed to be able to do that. And there's all these little things that come together That caused me to see these beautiful colors. Somebody made that. And when I look at it. I just go oh this is amazing. This is so beautiful. Why do I feel that way? Because I was designed. I was created. Romans 1.18 says that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against all unrighteousness. And ungodliness of men. Who hold the truth and unrighteousness. That word hold. Doesn't mean like they're like looking. I go this is really neat. It's more like. I don't want to think about that in unrighteousness literally because of the implications of their being a creator i go i don't want to think about this they suppress it they hold it down they don't want to think about it he says that which may be known of god is manifest in them god has showed it unto them the invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and godhead so that they are without excuse that's what the bible says Acts 17, Paul is preaching at Mars Hill. He says, God, that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though he need anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed. The bounds of their habitation. In him we live and move and have our being. These are amazing statements. You know what they tell us? From God's perspective, his existence is self-evident. The fact that we live on a planet that is the right distance from the sun. That it can actually sustain life. And we can actually live comfortably on this planet. And that all of the different things that go on on this planet. And I know this is a fallen world and we see a lot of evidence of that. But the order and the beauty and the design, it's absolutely stunning. Creation's order proclaims his wisdom, power, and love for beauty. Our conscience shows us that we understand there is good and evil, and there's a righteous standard that we have to face. History demonstrates that God preserves and personally cares for his creation. The word of God proclaims the essential truths we need to know God, walk with him, and live consistent with his design for our lives. Those are the kinds of things that we should be thinking when we read the scriptures that are here. And this is important for us to keep in our minds as we look at what Jesus says in these verses. In fact, there are some questions that we probably should ask ourselves Who is Jesus? How do we explain the fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies regarding his life and ministry? How do we explain the claim that he rose from the dead? How do we explain the stunning transformation of the apostles? That's probably one of my absolute favorite ones. How do we explain how the apostle Paul, who hated Christianity, fought against it and its claims, turned to them, losing everything for that choice, and ultimately died as a martyr for those truths? What's the point? The point is there's a lot of reasons to embrace the truth. There are limits to what God gives us, and at some point we have to make a choice there's a lot of reasons to believe. So that moves me to our first truth. The Jews who walked with Christ had no excuse for their decision to reject him. In verse 29 it says, when the people were gathered thick together, and in my mind I try to imagine what would that have looked like? And the, the picture that I get in my mind is something that probably you haven't really experienced here, but having lived in Ghana, okay, I remember what it was like in our village where we lived when they had a football match at the stadium in our community. And I don't know how many thousands of people could get into the football stadium, but I remember when when Ghana played China because the Chinese built the stadium. I don't know why they did that, but anyway, actually I do. But anyway, they built the football stadium there and the very first match was going to be The Ghana Black Stars playing against China national team. And I just, I tell you, if you saw the people like flooding into that stadium, it was a stunning thing to behold. They're pressing in. They want to get their seat. They want to get there where they can see the action. And that's what we're talking about here. All these people have heard about Jesus. They've heard the stories. They've heard about miracles. And they say, I want to see it for myself. I've heard that he heals the lame. And I've heard that he fed this this, uh, group of people on a hillside with just one boy's lunch. I want to see it for myself. And they're pulling in close. The people gather thick together. And he says this to them. This is an evil generation. And you go, well, hold on a second. Why didn't Jesus say, hey, come on over, guys. Let me show you something really neat here. Let me prove to you that I'm the Messiah. Somebody said. He said, this is an evil generation. You say, why did Jesus say that? Because he knows what's in the heart of people. He knows what motivated them to come and be close to him. They weren't there because they believed. They weren't there because they were convinced he was the Messiah. They were there because they wanted to see something fascinating. They wanted to see a moment that they could talk to their friends about. You won't believe it. There's this magician. His name's Jesus. He goes around and heals people. Hey, maybe he could heal your sister. Maybe he could heal your brother. Maybe he could heal your grandfather. Not, we've seen the Messiah. Totally different mindset. One, they just want to see something neat. The other one, they say, this is the one that's been promised from the beginning of the creation after the fall. And so Jesus says, this is an evil generation. They were the most privileged generation in history. Now, in some ways, I guess maybe we are in different ways. I mean, every person in this room lives better than, I'd say, 99% of the people who lived in the ancient world, okay? I mean, you like having uh, indoor plumbing in your house and you, you like the fact that, you know, you don't have to cook over a wood stove and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is that these people had access to information directly, specifically in a way that you and I don't have. They were eyewitnesses. They had the opportunity to read the prophets or to hear the prophets being talked about in the synagogues. They saw numerous signs as eyewitnesses of his ministry. They heard his teaching. They physically saw him crucified and heard firsthand eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. I think about what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says that Jesus was seen of over 500 brethren most of them are still alive. I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing to think about. So, you know, if you go to, into a court of law and you have two or three people that can, that can vouch for your story, that's a pretty strong case, right? Jesus has hundreds of people that saw him. That witnessed that, in fact, yes, he really died. And yes, he really rose from the dead. And these people lived at the time when that story was going all throughout the Roman world. The Romans couldn't stop it. The Sanhedrin couldn't stop it. People were embracing the gospel. Even at Pentecost, several thousand people were converted because they knew the story. They knew what took place. And they heard Peter testify, and they said, what he's saying it's true. I want you to listen to what Peter says at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus Whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, why did they do that? Well, because they knew what he was saying was true. As they're hearing this testimony, it was unquestionably true. And they, they said, What are we supposed to do? How do we resolve this issue? He was crucified. What do we do? Peter says, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of sins. Ye shall receive the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as our Lord shall call. With many other words, did he testify and exhort them saying, this statement's very important, save yourself from this untoward generation. What's Peter saying? All of the people that said, we reject what we've seen, God's going to deal with them. And if you want to escape that judgment, you need to repent and believe. You need to turn to Christ. You need to trust him as your savior. And if you will accept what he has done for you, he will forgive your sin. You'll experience his full grace. You will be Brought into his family through the work of Christ. That's what he's saying. The second truth I want you to notice is that the level of their hardness should sober every person in this room. Now, it's very easy for us to look at them and say, I can't believe they were like that. I mean, that is kind of the way that we tend to read certain passages of Scripture. Like, have you ever read through the Old Testament and you see that the nation of Israel does this? And then God punishes them and then God restores them and they do something very similar and then God punishes them and they restores them. And you just see this repeat over and over and over again. You're like, man, I'm glad I don't do things like that. And then, and then mom says, oh, really? <laughs> no." The fact is that it's easy for us to read the scriptures and say, they did that, they did that, we don't do that. But I want us to just think for a moment about what they did. And then we're going to look at How we do the same thing. Or something very similar. He says in verse 29. They seek a sign. And there shall no sign be given it. But the sign of Jonas the prophet. He then goes on and says. That the queen of the south. Shall rise up in the judgment. With the men of this generation. And condemn them. He then goes on and says. That the men of Nineveh. Shall rise up in judgment. With this generation. And condemn it. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is looking at the way that they came to him. him, And he's looking at the disposition of the people because he knows what's in their hearts. And Jesus says their hearts are actually hardened. Even though they've seen so much, even if I give them more, they'll still reject what I've given them. You know the story of the rich man, Lazarus. And in the story... As Jesus is telling it, Lazarus says, I have brothers. Could you, or not Lazarus, the rich man says, I have brothers. Could you send Lazarus back that he would warn them that they don't end up like me? And what does the answer come back? Well, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't hear them, they will not even hear though someone rose from the dead. Now, why did Jesus say that in that story? Well, the reason he said it is because that's exactly what happened. Jesus rose from the dead. There are people that knew it was true. They knew it could be verified. They knew through all of the people giving testimony that in fact it actually happened. And they said, I still will not accept this message. Their response to Christ was one of trying to trap him with questions. Attributing his miracles to the power of Satan. It was dismissiveness of eyewitness accounts that were given. And it ultimately ended in a hatred that was willing to take him to the cross, knowing full well that Jesus was an innocent man. Listen to this conversation between Pilate and those who wanted to crucify Jesus. Matthew 27. Pilate said unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. The governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? That's a great question for a judge to ask. They cried the more, let him be crucified. They didn't say, well, no, he's actually guilty. They just said, I don't care, just kill him. That's what they said. I mean, it's kind of a stunning thing to think about. He's like, he's an innocent man. Why should I do this? They're like, don't worry about it. Just kill him. You see, that's pretty callous, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> but then it gets worse. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and wash his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. What, a, what an amazing statement. I'm about to let you kill an innocent man, and I'm washing my hands, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. And then they said this, his blood be on us and on our children. That ought to make every person in this room very, very sobered. But someone with that kind of access to truth could be so callous. You want to talk about no fear of God? That's exactly what we see there. An appropriate response to a moment like this is that we should learn that unbelief does not look the same in everybody. For some people, unbelief looks like people coming and they just want to see a freak show. They're like, I don't believe this, but I want to see something neat. For some people, it was crucify him yeah we know he's innocent doesn't matter we hate him why wash my hands of this his blood be on us and our children he was like wow that's really crazy for some it was saying well you know you did that by the power of satan we can't deny that in fact you have performed a miracle this day but you didn't do it by god's power you did it by satan's power unbelief doesn't look the same with everyone with some people unbelief is very callous looking it's very arrogant it's very vicious. With others, it's, "Ah, there's not enough proof for that. I don't believe that. I don't think the evidence is strong enough. If you can give me a little more, then I'll believe. It can look a lot of different ways. Second thing is this. We should learn that visible, undeniable proofs are not enough to make someone believe the truth. Isn't that an amazing thing to consider? These people saw the miracles of Christ. And instead of saying, oh, that didn't happen, they didn't say it didn't happen. They said it happened by the power of Satan. Do you understand what that testimony is saying? They didn't deny the fact that he did something miraculous. They tried to explain it in a different way. It's very significant. Third, we should learn that the root of unbelief is not a lack of opportunity or facts. It's rebellion. It's pride. Why did he say, repent it's because their attitude and their mindset was so set and so hardened that they needed to humble themselves and look up to God and say God be merciful to me a sinner this is the Messiah and he's my only hope that's what they needed to do and so unbelief is a serious matter it's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness God commands all men everywhere to repent. It's the spirit of God convicting the world of sin because they believe not on Christ. Those are passages of scripture that that explain what unbelief is and what it looks like. So that moves us to a third truth. We should be humbled by those who defied the odds and believed. Now this passage has had a very negative tone to it. But there is a positive element as well. Because he's going to bring up two groups of people that defied the odds, and when no one would have ever believed that these people would have believed, in fact, they did. The first example that he mentions is one that would have probably sent chills down a lot of people who understood the history. He mentioned the Ninevites. Who were the Ninevites? Well, I was able to go to the British Museum several years ago. And when I went into the British Museum, I had the opportunity to walk through these pillars that, well, thousands of years ago were in Nineveh. (laughs) It's pretty crazy to think about. Like the actual pillars to that city. And that city was the center hub of this powerful and vicious and brutal empire. Any of our ancient history buffs out here, if you know anything about the Ninevites, you know anything about the people, they were a very vicious people. Some of the most brutal of their time. And so what does God do? God takes Jonah, the prophet, in the northern tribes of Israel, and he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and cry out against the wickedness of their city. And you know what Jonah does? He says, not a chance. He goes down to Tarshish. He gets in a boat. He goes down in the bottom of the boat. He goes to sleep and he tries to pretend like this is all a nightmare and I'm not going to go to Nineveh. And then what what we know next happens is that as Jonah is there sleeping in the boat, there's this horrific torment of a storm. And the boat is getting tossed all around. And the people that are there, they believe they're going to die. And so they're all, they're all crying out to their gods. And they're, they're swearing oaths to their gods. And they're making promises that perhaps they can survive. And they say, is there anybody else on this boat that hasn't cried out to their gods? And they're like, yeah, there's some guy sleeping in the bottom of the boat. They're like, what? Yeah, go get that guy. They drag him out and they say, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm the reason the storm's they're like, well, why don't you cry out to your God? He's like, just throw me overboard. <laughs> I'd rather die in the ocean so that you guys can live and I don't have to go to Nineveh. And we know the story. By the end of the story, God sends Jonah to Nineveh. And I don't know how J- Jonah preached, but I can kind of see him shuffling his feet around going, oh, repent. God's going to destroy the city. I hope nobody hears this. And all of a sudden, What happens? People are humbled. They're broken. From the king all the way down. The people even made their animals wear sackcloth. It's kind of a crazy thing to think about. The entire city said, the God of Israel is going to judge us. Maybe he has mercy. And God spared the city. And there's Noah. or Noah. There's Jonah. He's sitting on this hillside and he's watching the city just waiting for God to destroy it. And he doesn't. And he's like, what's the deal with this? I go and I tell them God's going to destroy them and he doesn't do it. Why not? And God says they repented. And Jonah's angry. Now, that story really happened. And not only did it really happen, Jesus brings it up at this time to say, the people in Nineveh, yeah, those horrible, evil, vicious people who Jonah did not want to go and preach to, the most unlikely of the unlikely, they turned to Israel's God and they humbled themselves. And they're going to get up on the judgment day and they're going to say, you mean you people got to see Jesus and you rejected him? What is your problem? I mean, that's kind of the sense of what he's saying. All we needed to hear was this guy who'd been down in the belly of a fish And he didn't smell very nice. He didn't look very good. And he's mumbling something about repent or the city's going to get destroyed. And we said, hey, we believe. And you guys didn't do that? He brings up the second person, the queen of the south. We believe this is the queen of Sheba. There was a region that would be kind of like the northern tier of Ethiopia today, Djibouti. Yemen okay this is the area where this woman would have ruled and here is Solomon this powerful man who lives great distance away from this woman and she hears about Israel she hears about their God she hears about their king she hears about their temple she hears about his wisdom and she goes I need to meet this person not I'm going to fly there and meet him I'm going to get this massive caravan and we're going to go through the desert, down the Nile River, up the Nile River, however you look at it. Okay? It flows down and up at the same time. I'm going to go down the Nile River. I'm going to go up to this man and I'm going to meet him and I'm going to ask him all these questions. And she believed. 2 Chronicles 9 talks about this. Now, think about these two examples. Both were Gentiles. Both were Gentiles. One happened at a time when Israel was weak and vulnerable. And by the way, would eventually be destroyed by the Assyrians. Very, very sad. The other happened at a time that was the peak of Israel's power and influence. There was no time in the ancient world that the nation was more powerful. One group experienced God's extraordinary grace by sending a rebellious prophet to rebuke their sins. One traveled extraordinary lengths to learn about Israel's God. One, the distance made it improbable. The other, the debauchery, made it improbable. But guess what? They both came. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, listen, you guys have a higher level of accountability than they do. And they accepted it, and you've rejected it. If these people could turn to me, what's your problem? That's what he's saying. If these people could turn to me, what level of judgment will you will your rejection of grace incur in the end? His words are, humble yourself and learn from them while there's opportunity. And by the way, this this conversation that Jesus is having with them, it wasn't like he was saying, so you've crossed the line and now you can't come to me. He's not saying that. I mean, even the people who crucified Jesus and said, his blood be on us and our children. At Pentecost, Peter's preaching and saying, you need to come to the Lord. They had the opportunity. Jesus wasn't trying to just like, you know, poke their eye and say, ah, you missed and it's all over now. That's what he's doing. He's saying, if they could come, why can't you? That's what he's saying. They say, well, well, Joel, how do you put this all together? Let me give you some, some thoughts that I hope will be very practical. The access that we have to God's word, the research tools that are available today, make us some of the most privileged people in history. Anybody in this room have a Bible? Anybody have a box of Bibles? (laughs) Anybody have Logos? I got Logos, okay? I got 3,000 books in my Logos library, not even what I got in my my office. I have all these research tools. You can do unbelievable research today. People who lived a couple thousand years ago, the the way that they were able to put together sermons and teaching without the tools, it's, it's quite phenomenal to think about. The recall of the scriptures that these people have, it's absolutely amazing. Read some older works and ask yourself, do you know the scriptures like these people? Yet even though we have all that access, are we more godly than they are? If your answer is yes, I don't think that's true. <laughs> Modern technology and scientific discoveries give us more evidence than ever to the wisdom and power of God as creator and sustainer. I mean, there's a telescope up there in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins. And you can look out into galaxies that before that thing was built, you wouldn't even know they existed. And people study this stuff. And the the kind of research that is available to our kids today, what does it do? It testifies to the order and the wisdom and the power of God. We have two thousand years of church history filled with stories of endurance, faithfulness, and rigorous Bible preaching and teaching. I mean, you can read a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can read about Christian missionary biographies. We had a, a, a gentleman that came, and he he wrote two volumes. And every single morning, you can you can read your scriptures, and then you can read a story about one of those individuals that God used—a missionary. And you think about the sacrifices that these people made. The kinds of things that we get, you know, get off about. Like these people endured immensely. They were faithful. And what do those things do? Well, they kind of, they kind of humble us. We realize, wow, we're not as strong and vibrant and tenacious as these people were. But they encourage us. They say, man, if those people could do that, why can't we do that? We could step it up. Let's step it up. Let's be faithful. We have that. We can listen to sermons and theological podcasts all day. A lot of times on Monday, if I'm out working in my yard, I guess I won't be doing that this Monday, but uh, I'll be out there working in my yard. I'll listen to hours of sermons. Unfortunately, I probably tune out a lot of what I'm hearing while I'm doing that. It's just almost like background noise, but I'm listening. There'll be things that I pick up on. And I can listen to this for hours. You can do the same thing. You know, when you're commuting, going to DC, you know, coming back, you get a couple of hours of time to listen. But don't miss this. It's actually dangerous to have this level of access to truth. Now, I'm not not discouraging you from listening to sermons and podcasts and reading church history. I, I think that's great. But here's what I'm saying. It's dangerous. Because as you have all this information available to you, you sift through it, you think about it, you're accountable to God for a lot. Every single one of us is. And what's really scary, but it's really true, is that sometimes we learn the Bible and we learn about theological concepts. And the fact is, it's not making us holier and it's not making us love Jesus more. It's actually making us prouder because of the way we're interacting with it. It's like, it's almost like a hobby. Like somebody who likes to fish or somebody who likes to get out and you know, ride roller coasters because it gives them this thrill. There's some people that theology gives them a thrill. And they actually study and they read and they listen, not so that it hits their soul and shapes their disposition and humbles their heart, but they listen to it because it's a type of entertainment. This is something that, it's a danger for pastors. I could tell you, I know firsthand it's true. It's dangerous. We have the potential to become very complacent and very callous to the truth. We can excuse sinful, serious patterns and choices because we love to learn, discuss, and debate theological questions. Like I could have something going on over here that's really serious, but because I got my little, my little theology bubble that I love talking about and thinking about, I can completely ignore this. I can justify, I can act like it's not even there. We've got to be so careful. God wants us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. He wants us to be gripped by the truth in our souls and motivated to have heartfelt worship and humble obedience. He wants us to become spiritually mature and strong, not consumers of theology as a hobby. We should open our Bibles with a humble anticipation of what God wants us to know. I want to encourage you, when you come to church and it's time for us to listen to preaching and teaching, and and you know what, sometimes we come, we're, 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 we're a little off, okay, pastors get a little off too sometimes when they when they step into the pulpit you don't know what's been going on during the week or what's been going on on the weekend cuz everything going on in our lives and sometimes we need to just say lord help me for these few minutes to set aside the distractions set aside the cares set aside the frustrations and help me to just focus on the word and open my heart and convict my soul and help me to submit to what your word says And God, help it to shape me. That's what we've got to do when we come to this place. We need to open our Bibles with a humble anticipation of what God wants us to know. We need to come to church with a desire to grow strong and give of ourselves in service to others. Not to be entertained. Not because it's a hobby that we enjoy. Because we want to be changed by God. If someone has never placed their faith in Christ... Turn to him today. There's so much opportunity. There's so much information available. Don't push it to the side. Every time that we resist the truth, we become a little bit more calloused and a little bit more hardened. A little bit more desensitized. The truth doesn't sting quite like it did. It doesn't doesn't encourage us quite like it did because we've become callous to it. We need to turn to him. For the vast majority of us, the encouragement is let's humbly respond to the word today. Let's ask the Lord to help us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, as we think about the word this morning, I pray that you would grip our souls. You love us so much. You've given us so much. You've done so much for us. And we have become very consumer-oriented in our thinking. Many of us have become calloused. We're almost entertained by truth rather than being taught and humbled by it and shaped by it. And so I pray that you would help us, if needed this morning, to have a heart of repentance toward you, a mind that is thinking clearly about truth and a heart that has deep affection for you. May we be doers of the word, not just hearers only. We ask it all in Christ's name, amen. Please, let's pull out of our our hymn books. And you know, there might be someone here this morning who you don't know the Lord is your savior. I don't know. If you've never trusted Christ and maybe you need to speak with someone about that, don't hesitate. You can come by, shake my hand, give me a fist bump, do the the wave thing, whatever, (laughs) okay? Say, Pastor, I'd really like to talk to you. I can talk to you today. I could talk to you sometime this week. But I would ask you, do not leave this place. If you know you need to trust Christ your Savior and you're confused, you need to talk through this issue, please don't leave here without reaching out. Or send me an email. I I can set aside time whenever needed so that we can have this discussion. And may all of us take the truth and embrace it this morning. Let's sing together. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. 160, please let's stand together. We'll sing the first and the last verses of this song. that's where we'll end a service like this one. Loving the Lord with all of our heart. With all of our heart. Brother Bill Few, can you come and close us in prayer, please? And I hope that if you possibly can, you can join us this evening as we continue our series through Old Testament narratives dealing with the story of redemption.
3: Dear Lord, thank you for bringing us here safely this morning.
1: Thank you for the sobering reminder brought through Pastor uh, of the responsibility that we have given the truth that we've been given, the great truth both in the world and through your word. I pray that we would keep those truths uh, in our hearts and have them actually change us.
3: Um, I pray that those who need to know you would come to know you through this and that those of us who do know you would increase in our uh, love for you. In Christ's name, amen.